CB On Air, cutting edge conversations with those in the central banking community. Hello and welcome to this episode of CB On Air's Rewiring Macro series. I'm Dan Hinge. Throughout the series, we've been looking at various ways macroeconomists are reforming core models or taking the discipline in new directions entirely. With me in the studio today is Greg Kaplan, a professor at the University of Chicago and co-author with Ben Moll and Jen Luca Violante of Monetary Policy According to Hank. The paper won Central Banking's Economics Award this year for its attempt to add some much-needed realism to core macro models. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you here. So, to start in very broad terms, um, do you think there's anything wrong with macroeconomics? And if so, what? So certainly there's been a perception that there's uh, something you know, quote-unquote wrong with macroeconomics. Uh, macroeconomics and macroeconomists have been uh, criticised uh, substantially over the last decade. But you know, I think if you think a little bit about what is the source of these criticisms, they mostly revolve around a perception that the economics profession wasn't paying enough attention to certain issues um, at least in the way that macroeconomics has been uh, perceived outside of the, the, the profession and portrayed. But it, what are these areas? I mean, if you think about them, they're things like one, financial intermediation, two, distributional issues, and three, uh, bounded rationality. These issues are kind of front and center in macroeconomic research today. In fact, in my opinion, they are by far the most active areas of research in, in macroeconomics. So uh, in some sense, I think there, it's a little bit weird to think about a discipline as being portrayed as being right or wrong. Um, some people might think there's better approaches to trying to figure out how to how the macroeconomy works, how to come up with uh, policy tools for improving it. Um, but certainly uh, the profession has moved in the direction of uh, trying to incorporate some of these, these, these issues a little bit more um, solidly, solidly into the work that's being done. Now, that being said, I do think there is one kind of more conceptual area where I think the discipline might have been at fault, and, and that's in the classroom and, and thinking about the, right. the way that we teach macroeconomics. So if you open up macroeconomic textbooks, you typically find macroeconomics being described as the study of two things, growth or the level of prosperity in the long run and cycles, the, the level of prosperity in the, in the short run. But I think macroeconomics also uh, encompasses encompasses a third thing, which is distribution or the distribution of prosperity. Right. Um, and if you if you ask our, our listeners maybe to think back to when when you or they might have taken an undergraduate class in macroeconomics um, back when you were in college, I'd be willing to bet that that class had almost nothing to say about inequality. Yeah, it's certainly true of my courses. That's right. So you know we, we are taught that macroeconomics it's about the size of the pie. It's not about the size of the slices, certainly not about who should get them. Mm. Um, and that's not a critique about uh, people doing macroeconomic research, because I think, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this, that I think distributional issues are really front and center in macroeconomic research today. It's more of a criticism about the way we teach it and how that's translated into the public's perception of what mm. macroeconomics and macroeconomists do. So in a sense, some of these criticisms are a little bit out of date, maybe maybe they were fairer around 2008 or so or just before then or even that would you say that's not fair either so i think if you look inside central banks at the sort of uh, frameworks and models that were being used on a day-to-day -day basis for thinking through monetary policy issues it was um probably safe to say that there was very little in the way of uh, heterogeneity or distributional issues incorporated into those models right. now 
thinking through monetary issues inside central banks is a very small part of macroeconomics. And yeah, in fact, sure. there's been a and have a long tradition of uh, incorporating uh, heterogeneity and inequality and economic diversity into macroeconomic models, starting in the early 1990s and uh, growing through all the way to today. I think what changed after 2008, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about some of the work that we've done, but also a bunch of other people as well, was to try and take that branch of macroeconomics that had thought very much, very, very hard about distributional issues in the context of things like uh, fiscal policy, um, tax and transfer policy, you know, redistributive type questions, social security reform, uh, things like that, and bringing those same frameworks to, to bear on monetary issues. Okay, and it's kind of it strikes me as an interesting idea. This the the translation of the ac- academic work into kind of the policy sphere. Uh, but maybe maybe we can touch on that again in a minute. Um, but first, can you give us a, a sketch of the the Hank model, heterogeneous agent, New Keynesian model? Sure. Yeah, that's right. So Hank Hank's an acronym, as as you mentioned. So it stands for heterogeneous agent, New Keynesian model, and that acronym is really comprised of two parts. So the first part, the heterogeneous agent part, and the second part, the New Keynesian part. And what the what what the Hank framework does, and you know, I should say that we weren't the first set of authors to think about um, developing a framework like this. That it brings together two dominant strands of uh, macroeconomics that uh, were that existed in the profession up until very recently. So the first part is the 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 HA part, heterogeneous agent, and that just means that. These are models that incorporate an enormous amount of diversity across uh, the types of households in the household sector. And that's really to be uh, contrasted with the dominant paradigm uh, before that, which we can refer to as representative agent models, or the corresponding model would be the representative agent New Keynesian model or rank model, um, where the household sector was modeled as a a single household in which everybody is the same. The NK part of the framework is the New Keynesian part, that um, we don't really add much more there. So the idea was we were lifting out a a framework in the literature. What that part of the model does is introduce a a role for aggregate demand to affect the macroeconomy and for monetary factors to affect the the aggregate economy by allowing for uh, what we refer to as nominal uh, rigidities, meaning that some nominal variables in the economy, prices or wages, are slow to adjust to changes in, um, in the economic environment. But the, the new part of the Hank model is really on the household side. So, so let me tell you a little bit about how that works, the household yeah. side, right? So in our model, we model uh, households as being different in the, in the way in which they earn income and the amount of their labor income. So the households differ in terms of the, their long-run levels of income, but also the type of income realizations that they face over their lifetime. So here we're thinking about things like... Um, at some abstract level, it might be things like occupations or jobs. It's the changes in incomes they face might be coming from promotions and demotions, unemployment, uh, time off work due to personal circumstances. So households face this risk in terms of their labor income, which translates into inequality in, in labor income. And in the face of this income risk, the households in our model take make two types of decisions. They decide how hard to work, which translates into labor income, And then they make a decision about consuming and saving. They decide how much of their income to to eat and how much of it to save. Right. And one of the things that uh, distinguishes 
our heterogeneous agent framework from some of the literature that came before, and which turns out to be really important, is that we give households two different ways in which they can save. Okay, so we think about two types of assets. So one of these assets is a liquid asset. By liquid, I mean that it earns a relatively low return, but it's very easy to save in. Okay. Okay, so when you think of things like your checking account. Yeah. The second type of asset we refer to as an illiquid asset. This earns a higher return, but it's uh, a bit more costly. Either you can think of that cost in terms of monetary, time, or just effort terms in transacting in. So think of this as a stand-in for things like housing equity or even tax-deferred retirement accounts or pension plans that you can withdraw from your retirement account. It's a little bit more difficult than it is to withdraw from your checking account. Sure. Now... What's important is that in the face of having these different assets that households can save into, it gives rise to heterogeneity and inequality in wealth and importantly, household portfolios. So you have some households who have a lot of wealth, you have some households who have a little bit of wealth, and you have some households that have a, even if they have a lot of wealth, they have some of it in illiquid assets, their house house or their retirement account, and some households who have a more substantial amount of liquid assets. And when you have that sort of heterogeneity, it gives rise to a class of households that we refer to as wealthy hand-to-mouth households. And these play a really big role in um, the way that the monetary transmission mechanism works once you incorporate household heterogeneity. Right. So hand-to-mouth households are important because they, uh, they have certain economic characteristics about the way they spend and save, which is seems to be consistent with a lot of evidence that we have. So, so what is a hand-to-mouth household? A hand-to-mouth household is basically a household who essentially en- ends their pay periods with very little in the way of liquid assets. Right. Okay, so it means you're basically living paycheck to paycheck. Now, when someone's living paycheck to paycheck, that means two things. Firstly, they're not doing much in the way of active saving. So changes in interest rates don't have a huge effect on their behavior because they're not actively saving. so They don't have much to save at the end of the month. At the end of the month, they're not saving. So if you increase interest rates by 50 basis points, it's not going to have a large effect on their decisions. At the same time, those same households are much more sensitive to changes in their disposable income. Exactly because they're not saving, at the margin, they are more likely to, to spend an additional dollar of income. Right. Now, that's important because it means that these are households who are not very sensitive to changes in interest rates, but very sensitive to changes in income. That turns out to be extremely different from how you think about a household who is spending and saving who has a substantial amount of liquid wealth, somebody who is actually going to save at the, end of the, at the end of each pay period. Those households are typically much less sensitive to changes in, in their disposable income. Why? Well, if they wanted to spend another $100, $100 pounds each month, they have they have resources to do that if there was something that they really, really wanted. But at the same time, because they're saving, it's much more important to them to think about at the margin what the returns on the return on that saving is, Mm, which is the the interest rate. Um, And, you know, one of the things that that, that's important in in this framework is that there there are two types of these hand to mouth households. So when you think about hand to mouth households, you think about people living paycheck to paycheck, probably the first thing that comes to mind is people with very little wealth. Yeah. But in fact, what we point out in the model, but also in the data, is that a large fraction of the people in most developed economies, and we've looked at this in the US and in a large set of European countries and Asian countries as well, 
most of the households who save in this way are not very, very poor. These are households that do have some wealth. It's just that most of that wealth is tied up in very illiquid forms. Okay. Housing equity, tax-deferred retirement accounts, that sort of thing. In fact, in the United States, between 30 and 40% of households fall into this, this category of being wealthy hand-to-mouth. The number okay. in the UK is, is kind of similar to that. So it's a substantial fraction of, of households that have illiquid assets, but very little in the way of liquid assets. And then it's a smaller chunk that's uh, kind of impoverished. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, if the way the history of thought on this is that for a long time, we've understood as economists that the households who are most likely to be sensitive to changes in income and not sensitive to interest rates are these you know, hand-to-mouth households. But there was just a perception that there's not very many of them. In like the, the, what we call poor hand-to-mouth households, house, mm, households who yeah. have very little total wealth. In the U.S., that's you know, roughly around 10% of households, okay. um, maybe a bit less today. And the U.K., again, a number that's somewhat similar to that. So the general perception was that we know these households are there. It's important to think about them from a welfare perspective. But from an aggregate perspective, they're just not important enough in terms of overall spending to really be driving uh, aggregate spending behavior. Right. But once you include the wealthy hand-to-mouth households, you now have a much more substantial chunk of the population getting up towards a third to a half of all households, yeah. comprising a larger fraction of aggregate spending and so it becomes much more important to think about what their spending is res- is response is responsive to and so where does this bring us brings us to what the punchline of the, the the hank model is in the framework which is what does that mean for monetary transmission how does monetary policy work because conventional monetary policy is really tinkering with short-term interest rates thinking about how that tra- those translate into the interest rates that households actually um, face and then how do those, spe- that, how do those uh, changes in interest rates affect household spending? Now, what we find is that because of the presence of these, these hand-to-mouth households, aggregate consumption is much less sensitive to the direct effects of changes in interest rates, but it's much more sensitive to the indirect effects of changes in interest rates. Right. So what do I mean by indirect effects? I mean things that change households' disposable income. And this might be as simple as there's some households who are making mortgage payments every month and if they have adjustable rate mortgages and the central bank can, can affect those interest payments, that changes their, adjust, their disposable income, so they're going to be more sensitive to that. But more generally, uh, it's about the labor market because most households rely on labor market income for their, for their, as their primary source of disposable income. So what we find is that monetary policy, the monetary transmission mechanism becomes much more weighted to uh, the effects that operate through the labor market rather than the the direct effects of just changing interest rates that households face on saving directly. Right. And that's that's kind of just kind of tweaking the model or indeed maybe turning the model completely to away from intertemporal substitution, right, and more towards... Uh, I don't know, would you call them something like old Keynesian um, affecting uh, demand through through income? Yeah, and that's really interesting that you put it that way. Now, to many of our listeners, th- what I'm describing probably doesn't come as much of a surprise. Yeah. In fact, that's kind of the story that you're <laughs> taught when you're in undergrad. And it's also the story that you hear spoken about inside central banks as well. Now, where were the tension? The tension is that the models that we were using 
even though that's the story we're telling, that's not what was happening inside those models. Mm. So there was this big disconnect between the stories we wanted to tell, which have this very old Keynesian flavor. You increase interest rates, that affects either on the investment side, uh, so you, you lower interest rates on the investment side, that makes firms more likely to invest and they go out and, and produce uh, higher more labor. Um, and that increases labor income, which leads households to, to spend. Uh, that's like it has a very, you know, we call that an indirect effect. It's a general equilibrium effect because it operates through the labor market. That's not what's going on inside these representative agent Keynesian models, which is the dominant framework that we were using to think through the effects of uh, even unconventional monetary policies, but thinking about the monetary policy framework. In that model, what's going on is something that you refer to as intertemporal substitution, or what we refer to as direct effects. Basically means that interest rates uh, affect household spending because they affect the trade-off between spending a dollar and saving a dollar. The labor market plays absolutely no role. Disposable income plays absolutely no role because in those models, households are not hand-to-mouth. They're, they're very well insured. They're, they're saving at the margin. Changes in short-term changes in income do very little to change their, to change their spending. So in a way, what we did is by taking the baseline framework and modifying it in a way that was m- towards reality, which is incorporating heterogeneity in a way that's realistic in terms of yeah. household portfolios, we actually end up with a, uh, transmission mechanisms that I think are much more consistent with what our priors are on, on how some of these effects operate. But you know, in a way, it's, it, it, it's important for... Um, how we think about monetary policy for a couple of reasons. So let me mention maybe kind of two before we even get to the, the redistributive aspects of okay. this. So the first is that this indirect effects compared you know, through the through the household disposable income, the labor market, compared with the direct effects through intertemporal substitution, those effects are much further away from things that the central banks have direct control over. Central banks have direct control over some interest rates and maybe slightly less control over other interest rates in the economy. They have even less direct control over the labor market. Yeah. We really rely on this idea that these general equilibrium effects, this old Keynesian logic is going to work, work its magic through um, we're going to lower interest rates, and that's going to spur labor demand, which is going to push up total, total labor income. Right. Whereas the old, the, old the, the representative agent New Keynesian, the traditional way of how these models worked, that's a much more direct effect. All the household, all the, the central bank needs to worry about if you live inside those models is that they are effective at influencing the interest rates that households actually face. So that kind of suggests that maybe we need to be a little bit more careful of our expectations of what central banks are feasibly able to achieve. And... The second thing that leads to is the role of fiscal policy. Because the forces that I'm describing are things that we're much more um, used to thinking about within the context of fiscal policy. Yeah. Right? So there, with fiscal policy, we think about how being able to directly influence household disposable income through taxes and transfers. And there it's kind of obvious that what matters is what, at the margin, how likely is it that households are going to spend or cut back on spending in response to these changes in their disposable in the disposable income distribution and that shows up in this this hank framework as a much tighter connection between fiscal and monetary policy than you see in the representative agent counterpart Mm. in a way what happens in the heterogeneous agent model is that the efficacy of monetary policy because it operates through these um 
these indirect effects is much more dependent on what the fiscal authorities are doing at the same at the same time um, and that becomes important because it, it means that coordination between fiscal and monetary fiscal authorities and monetary policy is more important than it was mm. if you kind of ignore some of this inequality and some of this heterogeneity in household balance sheets. That's interesting. It, it strikes me that there's a few other strands of economic research going in kind of this similar direction. I, I was thinking back to the debate over helicopter money a few years ago, uh, which definitely highlighted the uh, the links between the central bank balance sheet and the government balance sheet. Mm. Um, and also there was a recent paper by Larry Summers about um, secular stagnation, and I was just thinking... Um, Again, that just shows how, how closely tied the actions of the fiscal authority and the, the monetary authority are. So I, I just guess that recent research is kind of converging towards that, that idea, which in fact I think we've known for quite a long time that, you know, if the fiscal authorities do the wrong thing and, I don't know, you end up with fiscal dominance, um, the monetary authorities are, are curbed. But maybe there's more of a, a day-to-day kind of effect going on there that, that we need to pay more attention to. Yeah, so there's this classic idea in economics of Ricardian equivalence, which is has been the way that we've thought about timing of fiscal policy uh, affecting the economy for a very long time. Mm. So Ricardian equivalence basically means that in a world without uh, frictions, so without financial frictions, or particularly without um, income inequality and in what households would call, what we call, economists would call incomplete markets, which basically means that households face income risk and have to save, then you end up in a situation where the timing of how the fiscal authority re- reacts to changes that are induced by monetary policy doesn't really matter. Yeah. So in, whereas in the heterogeneous agent frameworks, these time, this timing of, of fiscal reactions do change. And there, you know, as you pointed out, what we can't get away from is the fact that monetary authorities' actions affect the government budget constraint. Even if it's as yeah. even if it's as small things like changing the interest rate that they pay on uh, on debt, um, that's going to affect the house, the fiscal authorities' budget constraint. Now, yeah. the question is: Does something have to give in the budget constraint, and if so, when and how? Now that. What's true in classic representative agent economies is those particular decisions about how the fiscal authority uh, changes its um, spending or, uh, or taxing decisions in response to changes induced by monetary policy doesn't matter for, for the aggregate economy because how, at some point, whether it's in the future or today, households are indifferent about that. Once you introduce incomplete markets and heterogeneity in the, in the way that we have in these Hank models, those decisions become crucially important. Right. Not just in terms of the timing of, is, is the government going to react by increasing taxes today or in the future, because those changes do affect spending, but also there's now a decision to be made about which households in the economy are going to pay for these changes. And to the extent that different households, which we've already discussed, have different propensities to spend, there's becomes this additional uh, this uh, additional margin on which changes in the fiscal authority's spending de- or taxing decisions will affect aggregate demand and hence aggregate activity in the short run. So, compounding the fact that the, the central bank's models may not have been quite on target in the last few years, they've also got this quite inconvenient, really. Um, result from your paper that uh, they're going to have to work more closely with the fiscal authorities and, and maybe their policy even has a, a fiscal or at least redistributive impact. 
and somehow I guess central banks are going to have to face up to and, and figure out how to deal with that in the future. Yeah, I think that's broadly right. So it's certainly been a tenant of central banking that um, we don't get involved in distributional issues. Mm. Our job is to is to either stabilize prices or, main, depending on what the mandate of different central banks are, maintain full employment. We deal with aggregate issues, the size of the pie, we talked about, and we have very little to, to, to say or do about distributional issues. Mm. The idea being that we change an interest rate, that interest rate's the same for everyone, we're not really favoring any one individual um, or one group of individuals over another group of individuals. And that has been very convenient. It's it, it helps with independence. Yep. It allow it gives um, it gives central banks a way to separate themselves from more political issues. Now, the inconvenient truth is that that's just not as true as we li- would like to think. Yeah. I mean, you you know, I've spent time inside central banks, and you know, one of the things I hear is that um, the the number of letters that get written and that get received by retirees every time they yeah. cut interest rates. <laughs> Now, that might be because retirees have a lot of time on their hand, yeah, but it could also yeah. be that when you cut interest rates, you really are helping people who uh, are paying interest, so young homeowners yeah. uh, typically, and you're hurting people who rely on uh, safe, liquid forms of, um, of interest payments as income, yeah. which is retirees. You can't get away from the fact that you are redistributing wealth every time you change, every time you change interest rates. Um, so there are redistributive consequences, even of very conventional forms of monetary policy. But as we've seen um, recently, central banks moving into more unconventional forms of monetary policy that take the form of direct intervention in asset markets, large-scale asset yeah. purchase programs, where we're moving asset prices as well, it becomes even more clear that we are redistributing wealth every time we do that. What we point out in our paper, and I guess is we're just building off a large microeconomic literature that... Um, it wasn't as much attention to this wasn't paid inside central banks as maybe um, should have been that there is a huge amount of heterogeneity and diversity across households in their exposure to different types of um, assets yeah. and different types of interest rates. So you're moving income around not just in terms of net lenders and net borrowers, but also people who are exposed to different types of types of income. The other part, which is going to maybe less obvious, is that. Because there's a large number of households in the economy who really rely on labor income, not asset income, uh, as their disposable income, every if, if monetary policy is operating primarily not through these direct effects, but yeah. through these indirect effects through the labor market, then there's these more, more redistributive effects going on every time that, that, we, that we change, um, that we uh, implement monetary changes, that we are influencing the labor market and that, and Therefore, we are shifting resources around between people who are more reliant on asset income versus versus labor income. So, yeah, I do think this is an inconvenient truth. What do do I think that central banks now should be targeting particular groups in the population? In the population, no. But I think that we're not going to be able to get away from the fact that we uh, have distributional redistributional consequences when we implement monetary policy. I think it's better to have frameworks to be able to understand those those yeah. influence impacts in advance, to be able to think through and talk through how our actions affect wealth inequality and affect different households differently, rather than to just ignore it and to yeah. play dumb. Can you envisage a, a kind of world that's pretty similar to our own, but where central banks, 
I mean, for instance, I've never been to a press conference and seen a central banker asked about inequality uh, after a policy change. Maybe, maybe from the, the perspective of you know savers being hammered again by low interest rates, but it's never been a case of, or never really been a case of you know you're you're worsening the problem of inequality and it's already pretty bad. It's, uh, it's generally uh, Mark Carney used the word bloodless recently when talking about the labour market. Um, because he was, you know, just talking in bloodless central banker terms. Um, so I, I don't know. Can you envisage a world where central banks are a bit more engaged with that uh, more, more visceral labour market? You know, I think we're living in that. So one okay. of the so, okay. so one of the things that John Luca and Ben and I did recently, and maybe we can find this and put it up on your website, is we had an we had an RA go back and look at the speeches of central bankers around the world over the last. Okay two decades or so, we look for words like inequality, heterogeneity, wealth distribution. Um, and you look at the plot and it's striking. You know, 15 years ago, the, those words were not being mentioned by okay. central bankers. You're absolutely right. But in the last decade, uh, it's just skyrocketed. Mm. The number okay. of times okay. that you see this inside spe- in the speeches of central bankers around the world. So I think that the understanding that they affect wealth distributions, even if the effect on actual wealth inequality might be small. I mean, you know, inequality is a stock. I mean, it's not it's not true that changing interest rates can have a big effect on inequality. Okay. That's yeah. not what we're saying. Yeah. But there's a difference between saying it there has a, there's a big effect on the stock of inequality versus there's going to be some winners and there's going to be some losers from um, from changes in uh, in central bank actions. And when you start from the basis base of already high inequality, and maybe not just high inequality, but a, a big focus on inequality by the public, yeah. there becomes much more of a, um, a pressure to be able to understand or at least uh, respect what those differences in, um, in, uh, in, in the effects of policy are on different, on different types of households. Okay. So maybe I'm being a bit unfair on central banks there. I think. It sounds like they are grappling with these issues and increasingly communicating about it as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, the the reception to our work by the central bank community has been fantastic. You know, when right. I say, I don't want any of this to be taken as, uh, hey, yeah. we're trying to tell central banks something and they're not, that's not, they're not listening. Yeah. That's yeah, not yeah, true yeah. at all. I mean, I th- the, the central banking community, particularly those inside research, research departments, has been, you know, overwhelmingly welcoming to this, uh, this work on heterogeneity. And, as I said earlier, this is an active area within um, macroeconomics. I look at what young people in PhD programs who are doing macroeconomics are working on, and like I said, it's kind of three issues, financial intermediation, bounded rationality, and distributional issues, and more and more, all three of those together. Right. Um, John Luke and Ben and I have been invited to central banks all over the world to come and say, hey, listen, we have all these this data, micro data now. We have better data than we've ever yeah. had on household portfolios, on consumption, on income distribution. At, for some of it coming from, from uh, banks that are being regulated, some of it coming from household surveys, some of it coming from administrative data collecting, uh, collecting on, on the income side. 
we would love to be able to better use this data to understand the economy. Even if it's mm. not to understand what's happening in individual households, we want to understand how the, how this, the existence of this economic diversity might even affect out the aggregate effects of our policies. It's not just right. about the redistributive effects about the policies. It's about the recognition of just the presence of inequality changing the way in which the monetary framework operates. That, that reception has been overwhelming. And the challenge has been that the types of models that we need to be able to use that data and draw conclusions for policy, they're just more complicated than simpler models yeah, where there is no sure. inequality. And that, that, that takes some time. There's a teaching aspect of um, giving people the tools to be able to use them. There's a cohort effect of what people are learning when they're coming out of graduate school and training yeah. in economics. Um, and then there's just a, a, a familiarity in getting used to the idea that uh, that thinking about household heterogeneity is a first order important issue when thinking about the consequences of, of monetary policy. So there's clearly a lot of demand for your work. Um, can you tell us a bit more about this uh, masterclass that you're running? Is, is that specifically for central bankers? Yeah, so, no, that, yeah, great. So as I said, Gianluca and Ben and I, we were getting a lot of um, uh, a lot of invitations from different central banks around the world saying, hey, we've got people in our research groups that would love to know more about how do we start incorporating some heterogeneity into the sorts of models that we're using. Can you come over and, uh, and tell us about mm. how to, how to, some of the technical aspects of it, but also what are the policy lessons that people who are not going to get into the, the weeds and the, the nitty-gritty of solving things on a computer, what, what are the takeaways that we should, we should take from this? So we started developing a... Um, a short class for for central bankers and people in treasury departments and other uh, policy institutions to give them an introduction to this type of work. And so this year, for the first time, we're now bringing this all together in one place. It's, uh, we're going to run a class in August uh, in Chicago, hosted by the Becker Freeman Institute at the University of Chicago, where the goal is to bring together um, researchers in central banks, policy institutions, and treasury departments who want to know more about heterogeneous agent modeling and the tools, the the technicalities, and also the policy implications. Get them together in the same room, not just as a way of of giving them time to talk one on one with the with the three of us, but also to meet each other and to understand what different what people inside those research groups that different central banks are doing um, and this the so far the reception has been fantastic and we're hoping this will be a um, an ongoing an ongoing event so um, yeah, there's more information the Becker Freeman Institute great okay uh, we can include a link with our uh, with our story on this podcast that will be fantastic thank you very much